Well, we had a good session last time. We didn't quite complete the introduction, which I'll get into right away. But I uh, gave you a general introduction, and today we're going to look at a little more specific introduction as it pertains to primarily Scripture itself. So we've been talking about the science and art of interpretation hermeneutics is all about. So a simple, short, brief, hopefully clear definition of hermeneutics, the science and art of interpretation. So it deals with interpretation. I mentioned last time it has two basic components, general principles, which we will get into also today. And there's also what is described as special hermeneutics that deal with particular genres. We'll do that towards the end of class. And then in uh, about three weeks, we'll get into another aspect of hermeneutics called exegesis. I'll give you a little introduction to that today. Exegesis is the utilization or the application of the hermeneutical principles. The general principles apply to any passage from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. Special hermeneutics are principles in addition to the general principles, and they would be in relationship to particular literary form or particular genres. So these are in addition to the general principles. And the application of all of these principles we call exegesis, And once you've done your exegesis, now you're in a position to do exposition. That's not part of the course. That's an entire course in itself, usually described as homiletics, which deals with preaching or teaching. But exposition can include uh, discipleship or one-on-one application of the scriptures that you have exegeted. So this is somewhat the package of hermeneutics. And we're distinguishing biblical hermeneutics. I gave you a broad introduction to hermeneutics in general. And we're going to narrow it down to biblical hermeneutics. I gave you this little pyramid. And I said the way that you live, the way that you act, or the life that you perform or practice is based on what you believe. Now, sometimes what you believe in your head comes out inconsistently in the way that you live, but how you live really reflects what you really, really believe deep down. Even though intellectually you may hold to some doctrines, but most people are inconsistent in that. So practice is dependent on theology or thinking or ideas. And I mentioned that even the the unbeliever or even the atheist has a theology. I gave you An example, attempting to use a cartoon last time. Everybody has a theology. Theology, and the reason hermeneutics is important, theology is based on your exegesis, or lack thereof. (laughs) If you have a lack of biblical experience and teaching and first-hand exegesis, your theology is going to be probably shaky or deficient. And we said exegesis is based on hermeneutics. Your hermeneutical approach is going to dictate how you interpret and deal with scriptures. 
And now at this point, uh, we didn't mention this part. This is where we will pick up from where we left off last time. Your hermeneutics is based on certain presuppositions, or you might even put in this bottom foundation, stone, your worldview or the way that you see things, uh, the assumptions that you have that you cannot prove based on presuppositions. And this will be the starting point, and this is still part of the introduction, because what we want to do is sort out our view concerning particularly Scripture. So we're going to kind of narrow our worldview in terms of what is our attitude towards Scripture. And we are dealing with a particular hermeneutic that will dictate a particular exegetical process that is dependent on our view, particularly of Scripture, but even more broadly than that, dependent on our worldview. So we want to constantly be, as believers, refining our worldview such that it becomes more and more biblical. And at the heart of a worldview is our attitude towards God, first of all. These are basic presuppositions, and these are presuppositions that we would hold to, those that would be interested in taking courses from Chafer or have a conservative viewpoint in terms of theology. First of all, we believe that uh, the God of the Bible exists, and he exists only as described in the Bible. So we believe in the God that is described in the Bible. Now, everyone has a concept of God, even the atheist. Now, he believes that God does not exist, or at least he's convinced himself. But uh, liberals have a concept of God, but the liberal concept of God generally is not a biblical concept of God. So they start from a different God, actually. And if you're dealing with the cults, or if you're dealing with even Islam, they have a different God than the God that we believe in in terms of the Bible. So we begin with the God of the Bible, and this gets into a little theology here, but it's related here. I also believe, I don't know if you would agree, but I believe that the only way to really know the true God is by revelation. In other words, God has revealed who he is. And we only know him based on that revelation, revelation in scripture. So that's why I qualify it, the God of the Bible. So that's a presupposition that we have. Secondly, we have the presupposition that God has spoken in time and history in a way that men initially could have understood it, even heard it on Mount Sinai. We touched on this last time. If you had taken a video camera and tried to capture the setting, you would have recorded actual words that were spoken by God himself that were actually heard. Remember the passages we looked at that emphasized the children of Israel hearing what God spoke? So we believe in a God who has spoken, and he has spoken clearly. In fact, we'll get into this as a hermeneutical principle later on, but God has clearly revealed himself. Now, not everybody believes that. Uh, The liberals don't believe in revelation in the same sense that we believe in revelation. That's why their hermeneutic is different, because it starts at a different point. And we'll see that later on as well. Thirdly, We believe that that spoken word, that word of God, is inspired, inerrant, 
And, in fact, we would add canonized. In other words, the 66 books of Scripture. And, again, the presupposition of the liberal is different from that. They redefine inspiration. It's a different inspiration than what we believe in. And we're going to get into this when we talk about Scripture in this hour. They also deny inerrancy. That's one of the fundamentals of liberalism is they don't believe in an inerrant Bible. So they're starting from a different perspective. That's why the hermeneutic is different. Got it? They have a low view of canonization as well. In fact, they might accept uh, other books besides the 66 in Scripture. And certainly the the cults, they have a different hermeneutic because they have a different view of inspiration and inerrancy and what do they do to the canon? They add to it generally. So they have a different starting point. So their starting point dictates their hermeneutic. We believe, I want to add, man is depraved as the Bible describes him. Lost, a sinner, dead spiritually. This is very important because this gets into what, how, how we respond to scripture. In other words, man's capability in relating to to God's revelation. And we would say, and we touched on this last time, this is where illumination comes in. So we start from the perspective that man left to himself really cannot adequately interpret Scripture because of his spiritual blindness, first of all, and even after regeneration, needs the renewing of Scripture and also the enlightening of the Holy Spirit. So we start from that perspective. And again, the perspective of the liberal, he does not see man as depraved. He sees him basically good. And all of the cults as well distort the uh, true nature of mankind, including the image of God aspect as well. So this is our starting point. This is where we begin. And at the heart, obviously, God has spoken clearly and his word is inspired and inerrant and canonized. That's why we want to spend some time here just to lay a foundation concerning the nature of Scripture. So that's what we want to talk about for the next hour or so. What is Scripture all about? What is Scripture like? And again, this is in contrast to other approaches of interpretation, in contrast particularly to uh, liberalism and the cults. But it's also somewhat in contrast to those that allegorize as well although they're not as far in terms of theology from our perspective. So let's look at the nature of Scripture. And on that second outline sheet, we'll be following it, the one that says Introduction at the Top, Part 2. We completed Part 1 last time. So the nature of Scripture, first of all, it is unique. And already uh, the, the liberals would say what? In terms of this idea of uniqueness. Would they agree with us? Nope. Liberal theology basically looks at Scripture as just another book, just another human book written by human authors. Now, we'd say yes, written by human authors, but very unique, very different. So let's take a look at the uniqueness of Scripture. It's unique in its authority. Now, I'm going to expand this, but let me just kind of lay it out right at the very beginning. This, again, is different from other hermeneutical systems. The Bible, in our viewpoint, 
has all the full authority of God himself. And the way we'll expand that is we'll talk about revelation, we'll talk about inspiration, we'll talk about inerrancy. And all those contribute to the Bible as uniquely unique in the area of authority. And we would say there is no other book like it. So the Bible in its authority, it carries all of the authority, all of the weight of God himself. It is his book. Secondly, the Bible is very, very unique in its diversity. And we mention this in hermeneutics because this diversity is oftentimes a source of difficulty when it comes to interpreting. Because we need to take into account some of these diverse issues that come up in the Bible. So let me kind of outline some of them. And again, the liberal would not emphasize the diversity of Scripture because they don't see it as much different than any other book. In fact, today, most liberals don't even use the Bible. It's just kind of a side book that is nice and was good for the past, but we've moved on. We've evolved. (laughs) So, the diversity of Scripture, number one, in terms of its time of writing, most books have a very short time frame in terms of their writing. And this includes even religious books. Most of the books of Islam were written in the time frame of Muhammad. And obviously the Quran by him, by Muhammad, others that came later, but all of the writings of Islam within a relatively short period of time. And that's true of any, virtually any religion, and it's certainly true of just secular books that you would purchase on Amazon or wherever. But the Bible is unique, and it's different in that, in terms of the time frame, what would you identify as the first book of the Bible? We're we're developing a time frame here, so let's kind of walk through how we would develop this idea of us. Possibly Genesis. Any uh, other suggestion? Job. And it's possible that Job is probably the first book written, and it doesn't give a time frame, it doesn't give us any large clues in terms of when it was written, but it does seem to reflect more of a patriarchal culture than probably any other time frame which suggests that it might have been written in patriarchal time, which would put it about 2,000 years or somewhere in that time frame, 18, 1900 years B.C. So that's probably the first book. Now, one that we have a little bit more, or a better idea, even though we don't have a date for Genesis, I I think Genesis would be uh, probably a close candidate. And we know that Moses wrote the first five books, so we'd have to narrow it down to the... So, in certainty, Job, patriarchal, Genesis, probably somewhere around preceding the Exodus. The Exodus took place 1445. So, for certain, at least, the Bible was written, or at least the first book, probably at least in that time frame, if not earlier. So, we use 1445. And obviously, the last book of the Bible, book of Revelation, who wants to venture a date for Revelation? 91? Some scholars hold that. Generally, about 94, 95, that time frame. 
So we're talking about a hundred additional years. So we're talking about, obviously the book of Revelation, about 95. We're talking about a composition for the Bible of about 1500 years, give or take, possibly even more, but probably at least 1500 years. Now what book, religious or non-religious, composed over such a large span of time? Bible is unique in that. Now, the liberal would camp on that and say, well, obviously, now he doesn't give these dates, but he would admit that the Bible is written over a long period of time, and he would use that as a basis and an argument for certainly over such a long period of time, you're going to have things that are outdated, you're going to have things that are irrelevant, you're going to have things that probably contradict. Well, the Bible is unique, but we would add to that later on, we'll talk about in spite of all of these diverse elements, the Bible maintains a unified message without contradiction. And that's one of our hermeneutical principles that we'll develop. But we're looking at the diversity. Diversity in time, diversity in authorship. And again, some books, you might have dual authors, or you might even have three, maybe even four authors that contribute. Particularly a textbook-like book, where experts in a particular field in a textbook would only deal with certain chapters, then others deal with others. But in general, most books are just one author. And that includes even religious books, like the Quran, for example. But the Bible, you have an idea how many authors write? At least 40, about 40. And not only do you have a difference in the number of authors... But this next chart kind of gives you an idea of the diversity from which these authors come in terms of background. And just a feel for it, obviously we have prophets, and I mentioned them because the first writer was a prophet. We consider Moses a prophet. So not only Moses, but we have the prophets, the major prophets, along with the 12 minor prophets. So a large portion of the Old Testament is written by prophets. Plus, we have the book of Revelation, which would be considered prophetic and also written by a prophet. And even in a broad sense, when you define prophets in a biblical sense, you would include also writers of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, as prophets. But I won't go off on that tangent. We have some written by kings, particularly David, wrote at least half the Psalms, or at least half of them are attributed to him. Solomon wrote a few wisdom books. So kings are authors, scribes, Ezra for one. Priests are mentioned as authors. Historians. Now, you would consider the prophets that wrote these histories, you would consider them also as historians, because in fact, we we get the concept of historiography actually from Scripture, basically. It doesn't come from the Greeks, because Scripture already dealt with history long before the Greeks began to compose history. So, uh, historians... Apostles, New Testament, and by the way, we have historians in the New Testament as well, four Gospels, Book of Acts. Apostles, much of the New Testament written by apostles, some of the Gospels as well. The point here is with all of this diversity, 
the liberal might claim, again, the possibility of contradiction, the possibility of error, the possibility of things going wrong with so many authors. In fact, you would expect non-continuity in Scripture, which adds to the idea of inspiration. The view that we hold to is that you can maintain not only a book of integrity, but a consistent book in spite of the various number of authors. So you have shepherds, you would include David again, but others, statesmen, people like Daniel, scholars, at least Paul in the New Testament, at least one doctor, Dr. Luke, you might classify as a historian as well, fishermen, just common everyday people, people that uh, did not have seminary training, so to speak. Get the point here? And of all of these diverse different backgrounds, at least 40, maybe more, there are some books that we don't know who the authors are. So you have a variety of authors. Thirdly, you have a variety of settings in which these books are composed. So the different authors are living or experiencing different experiences and sometimes writing about different settings of different passages. We even have a pre-flood culture. Now, Moses composed the book of Genesis, but the book of Genesis gives evidence that Moses may have used sources, and it's possible that some of those sources predate the flood. Now, what's inspired is what came off the fingertips of Moses, but Moses used other documents, more than likely. The Toledoths of the book of Genesis. This is not unusual in the New Testament. Luke, in his introduction, remember, he talks about using different sources and documents that he gathered the materials together and organized them so Theophilus would have a coherent account of the life of Christ. Uh, Moses may have done that as well. So we may have some materials that, and certainly the setting of that pre-flood world is different from any other setting in the Bible. So you have pre-flood, you have Palestinian settings, much of the Bible written in that piece of real estate, land of Israel, Palestinian. Egyptian setting, you have to understand the Egyptian background and the setting in Egypt to understand the book of Exodus and much of the writing of Moses. Moses was raised in an Egyptian culture, and you get little hints of that background in all of the books that he writes, even the book of Genesis. Assyria is a setting of some, some of the prophets. Babylonia as well. Persia. And you'd have to include all of the Mediterranean for the New Testament. The Greco-Roman Mediterranean setting. So the Bible has a variety of settings in which it uh, came out of. And similarly, we have different cultures in all of those different settings. And you can use that same list. You have a pre-flood culture, which is unique and different from all other cultures. You have Egyptian culture, different, unique, Babylonian culture. All the same lists that I gave you before there. 
The Bible has a diversity of language. Again, most books written in one language. But the Bible is written in three languages. Now, predominantly Hebrew for Old Testament. But there are some portions, about half of the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic, a distinct language from Hebrew. And all of the New Testament is written in Greek, and a particular Greek period called Koine. So we have three different languages for the composition of the Bible. We have different purposes. Writers write for different reasons and trying to communicate different purposes. So we have diversity of Scripture. Now this comes into play when you're interpreting certain books. In fact, every book. We're going to talk a lot about purpose. Every book has a purpose, a particular reason why an author wrote. And it's important to try to discern that purpose in order to understand the meaning of that author. So this deals with every book. But particularly when you deal with books like the Kings, which deals with the same historical material that you find in Chronicles. And you might say, well, why, why is this passage, it's identical and it's, it's in a different book? Maybe there's a few little things that are different about it. Well, the, the book of Kings has a different purpose. This is more political. has more of a political purpose. Chronicles has a more priestly purpose. Even though it deals with the same time frames in some cases and same material, but it's written from a different perspective because it has a different purpose. Serves a different purpose. We see this in the New Testament. We have four different Gospels. Why do you have to have four different Gospels? Did Matthew write a Gospel and then uh, Luke came along and said, Oh, Matthew, you left out most of the birth narratives. Then he gives, uh, you didn't include uh, the genealogy from Adam to Abraham. I'm going to include that. And then John comes along and says, you guys all messed it up. i got to start from eternity past. <laughs> In the beginning was the word. Well, that's not the idea of Scripture. That One is not saying that the other is deficient or in error. The key to the Gospels and understanding them is understanding their purposes. And related to the purposes is the audience that all four of them are written to. But that's the point I'm making here is we have books that have different purposes, different aims. And each of the four Gospels are distinguished in that each has a unique and a different purpose. And particularly because it's written to a unique and different audience. So purpose comes into play. Point being, Bible has a variety of purposes. Then we have just genres or different types of literature. History has a different purpose. And we mentioned last time that the bulk of the Bible is written in narrative, historical narrative. That is distinct and different from epistolary. So a writer that uses the epistolary literary form is utilizing that literary form because he has a different purpose than a historical writer, etc. And we'll get into more of that as we get into the course. I'm just giving you the diversity of Scripture here. So diversity in time, diversity in authors, diversity in settings of which they come out of, the books, diversity of cultures, diversity of languages, diversity of purposes, 
Diversity of literary form, we've already touched on that. And just very broadly and very quickly, when we speak of literary form, we're talking about some material is discursive. Epistolary literature would fall under discursive material. Some material is narrative, your historical books, and particularly historical narrative. We've mentioned poetry. That's a unique and distinct literary form. We'll get into all of these individually, and we'll expand them when we talk about special hermeneutics. We also have prophetic material, which is unique to Scripture, but it's also unique in terms of its difference from other literary form. It has its own particular characteristics. We even have parabolic material, not just the parables of Jesus, but there's some parabolic material, parables in the Old Testament. And there's other types as well, which we'll discuss later on. So you have a variety of literary form, and obviously different topics that are dealt with, again, dependent on the author and his purpose, and even the time frame in which he's writing. And with all of this diversity, the liberal might say, this just increases the possibility of error, increases the possibility of contradiction. Their hermeneutic is different from our hermeneutic. In spite of the diversity, we would add the next thing to talk about is the unity of Scripture, which contributes, as I said already, to the idea of inspiration. So there's a a great unity, and first of all, the nature of God. What Moses begins in the book of Genesis in describing the God of the Bible, as you work through Scripture and you get through the end of the book of Revelation, it's the same God. Same God. Authors give a fuller picture, add to that that you find in seed form in the book of Genesis. But in the book of Genesis, you have the beginning of who God is. And it's fully developed as you continue through Scripture. Now, the liberals sometimes make a point. I'm making a contrast here, just to kind of emphasize the difference in hermeneutics here. The liberals sometimes contrast the God of the Old Testament as an angry God, a wrathful God. The God of the New Testament is a God of grace, God of love. Well, the Bible is unified. You can find the love of God just as prominent, if not more prominent, in the Old Testament and the God of grace in the Old Testament as you do in the New Testament. You also see a God of wrath. Ask Ananias and Sapphira what they thought of the New Testament God. Or read the book of Revelation and see how that compares to some of the judgments that are described in the Old Testament. So it's the same God. The God is consistent in Old and New Testament. And he's consistent from book to book. You don't see a contradiction. Even in the book of Genesis, even in Genesis 1-1, you don't have an explicit statement of the Trinity that is developed as you get through Scripture, particularly the New Testament. But you can find, even in Genesis 1-1, and you can find in the Old Testament at least allowance for the doctrine of the Trinity. Bereshit Elohim, two words, Hebrew, Genesis 1-1. Bereshit in the beginning, Elohim is what? God. 
And what's peculiar about Elohim? In Hebrew, you have an im ending. What's peculiar that im ending? Plural, exactly. So already in the second word in the Hebrew Bible, you already have a plural idea about God. Now, it doesn't explicitly teach the Trinity there, but it allows for the development of the concept. In fact, we don't have a full-blown Trinity until we get to the New Testament, but you have the God of the Old Testament already described in plural terms. And then, Bereshit Elohim bara, bara is a singular verb. So it's talking about a singular God that somehow is a plurality. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's that God. So he's not a different God. He's still the Trinitarian God. It's not stated explicitly, but it allows for a Trinitarian God that is developed as you go through Scripture. point I'm making here is the nature of God is consistent throughout Scripture. And when you see potential, this is another hermeneutical principle will develop, when you see what appears on the surface to be a contradiction, and particularly in the nature of God, what we do in our hermeneutic is attempt to harmonize. The liberal will do the opposite. They say, well, see, this just shows that we have contradictions. Okay. Nature of God. Nature of man is consistent. The nature of man is consistent. Particularly after the fall of man, we have man in rebellion against God. And this is consistent throughout Scripture. So it works its way throughout Scripture. There's no contrary or contradictory views concerning the nature of man. That's why we begin with the presupposition of the fallen nature of man. It doesn't overlook the image of God and man before the fall, but it deals with the bulk of Scripture. We also have a unified way of salvation. From Genesis 3 all the way to the end, it's always by faith and by faith alone. And that's unified. Old Testament is not a way of works. It's a way by faith. Abraham was justified by faith, Paul says. So, And you can go down the list of other doctrines as well. There's also a unified plan of history. You might even describe the Bible as a meta-narrative. What we mean by that, there's a broader, larger narrative or story that you can look at in terms of the whole Bible. This gives you kind of a plan of God for all of world history. The Bible gives you that. It's a plan that develops over time, but you have, even in the book of Genesis, Genesis 3, you have a prediction, basically, of an outworking of world history as it relates to solving the issue of sin. And we find out that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. And that's only the beginning of a fulfillment of a broader plan that won't yet be fulfilled until after Christ uh, returns. So you have this unified plan that in some cases is predicted or anticipated in the Old Testament, even as early as the early chapters of Genesis, and you see that plan worked out in time. So those prophetic passages are not contradicted by the outcome of history, but instead we see the fulfillment of that plan worked out as history moves, 
And as now we get closer to the end of history, we can see how that plan that is fully developed in, in Scripture, because canon is closed, we can see and have confidence that God is going to work out the details of that eschatological plan that has not yet been fulfilled. Make sense? So there's a tremendous unity in all of the Scripture concerning the things that it deals with and the teachings that we have. So this contributes to our confidence that what we have is an inspired book. So that's the nature of Scripture. So it's unique in its authority. The Bible is unique in its diversity, no book like it. And in spite of that diversity, God maintains a unity in terms of the unified message with no contradictions as you work your way through that book. It's also unique in its survival. The Bible has survived not only the ravages of time, but in history there have been attempts to destroy it or eliminate it or in in ways to get rid of it. An example would be in Jeremiah's day. Remember when Jeremiah wrote his book? It was destroyed. He had to rewrite it. That's just an example of what you have seen throughout history where men have attempted to uh, eliminate the Bible, even physically. Diocletian, Roman emperor, issued an edict in 303 to destroy every copy of the Bible. Obviously, it wasn't successful, but it was an attempt. In the Middle Ages, the church tried to replace the Bible with tradition. So that's one way that the Bible is undermined and had to survive. In more modern times, liberalism has totally tried to undermine the Bible, and yet, that's why we're taking this class, we still believe that it's relevant and inspired and inerrant. So the Bible has survived the ravages of time in men trying to undermine it. Today, one means that men, unbelievers, are are attempting to undermine Scripture is using science. But in fact, as a result of that, there's a whole movement called creation science that has developed arguments to show that actually science is authored by God. God's the author of science and God doesn't contradict himself in nature in relationship to what he's revealed himself in his word. So it's unique in its survival. It's also unique in its objectivity. This is different from most historical books. For example, the Egyptians, if you read or are able to read, or at least the translations of the writings of ancient Egypt, they do not say anything negative about their pharaohs and usually very little negative about their historical background. If they lose a battle, it's usually brushed over and not spoken of. They viewed Pharaoh as a god. Obviously, they wouldn't want to impugn God, so they don't speak negatively of of the Pharaoh. That's different. The Bible gives its leaders, except for Jesus Christ, who is in fact sinless, but everybody else, the heroes of faith, all the way back, well, first man, Adam, (laughs) fallen Adam, the first family, we have murder within the first family. Noah, after the experience of the flood, what's the last incident in the life of Noah? 
That drunken episode, it's got a lot of things that are not real clear, but leaves Noah left with in a negative light. We have objectivity in the description of not only events, but particularly God's people and God's leaders. Israel's greatest king was also what? Murder and adulterer and a liar. <laughs> and a, a man that covered up his crimes. So the Bible presents men in objectivity. The first pope had a habit of what? I'm being facetious. <laughs> Peter. Peter denied Christ, but he had a, had a foot and mouth disease, I think. Foot in the mouth disease. This is just the nature. Even the Apostle John, in his maturity, at the end of his life, in the book of Revelation, is rebuked two times. Do you know what? Four? Twice. Twice for worshiping an angel. Two times in the book of Revelation. John. The Apostle John. Yeah. Well, the point being is the Bible presents reality. It gives us an objective, God's perspective of reality, which is different from any other writing. That's why it's unique. Make sense? So this is the Bible that we believe in. We believe, first of all, in its uniqueness. Secondly, we believe that the Bible has a literary character or literary nature. And what we mean by that, we've kind of emphasized in this uniqueness that the Bible could not have been composed without divine guidance or divine motivation or oversight. And we'll even be more specific in terms of inspiration. That is brought out in terms of this unique aspect. Another aspect is this literary aspect. The liberals camp on this aspect. Now, we don't want to deny this aspect. We want to take it into account. But the literary aspect is that there are some characteristics of the Bible that are similar to just any other book. Make sense? That's what we mean by literary aspect. And in that, in fact, here's a photograph of a copy. It's called Vaticanus. It's a copy of a complete New Testament. This is just one page. I think I took that in 77. I must have been about three years old then. <laughs> With your iPhone? <laughs> <laughs> With my iPhone, yeah. At that time, in 77, they uh, they had that on display. And the reddish tint is because they had this thick plexiglass thing that kind of discolored the thing, and you couldn't use a flash. But they had it on display. This is, in fact, a cross, probably... This is half the page. This is the middle of the page. So this is one page. This is probably about, mm, I'd say, at least 10, maybe 12 inches. So it was a big, big book. Point being is the Bible has a physical preparation. It's written on particular materials, depending on the age. Usually parchment or vellum, different materials. So it has a physical preparation, or did have a physical preparation. And the copies of the Bible continued in that vein in terms of things that people can handle and read. In this case, it was a, a, a book rather than a scroll. 
The Bible has a historical foundation. It is set within time, and it's intimately tied. I'm going to develop this in, in greater detail. This is very, very important to our hermeneutic. It's not once upon a time, or it's not philosophical, if you will. It deals with the deep ideas and thoughts, particularly God's thoughts, and is ultimate philosophy, but it also is tied to reality, time and space. So it's got a historical aspect to it. It's linguistic. In fact, this is a major principle. This will be the first principle we look at. It's got linguistic characteristics. The better we understand language, the better we'll understand Scripture. And there's a reason for that. I'll give you kind of a biblical perspective on language when we get to that point, when we develop that principle later on. So it uses language, uses words, it uses alphabets, uses sentences, it uses paragraphs, all the elements of language. And very important, this is a principle in itself that we'll develop, it has a context, just like most other books. So it's best to understand the context. That doesn't mean we have to always just read it from cover to cover, but we need to be aware, if we are in the New Testament, kind of the background of the New Testament and that historical development that brought us to a period of time that we call a New Testament era. And we'll, this is this is a huge principle that we'll we'll develop that we believe in. Unfortunately, sometimes the average Christian picks a verse here, well-meaning. I'm not trying to be too critical here, but well-meaning. But sometimes we'll pick up a verse here and pick one here, and we'll develop a theology that may or may not be biblical. But the danger when we do that is it's easy to take passages out of context. I already gave you one illustration last time, just in general, of how sometimes the identical same words, remember our little atheist view of life and then the Christian view of life? Same words, but in a different, slightly different context, read slightly differently, totally different meaning. Well, you need to be careful taking things out of context. So the literary aspects of Scripture. So the nature of Scripture, it's unique. It has a literary aspect to it. And very important, and our hermeneutic is different from liberalism in this aspect, particularly the spiritual aspect. It has aspects to it that are supernatural, that no man can build in to a book. That spiritual aspect. And we will radically differ with liberalism on this point. And this will give you just a quick foundation of this spiritual aspect of Scripture that is very important that I, I think we need to take into account. Now, this comes from Scripture itself. In other words, these conclusions come from Scripture itself. So we're kind of going to Scripture to develop this idea, but I think it's it's important and it underlies our approach. And it's important because this distinguishes our hermeneutic from other hermeneutics. First of all, everything in Scripture is a revelation. This means that the authors didn't just sit down and think, hmm, I'd like to write a nice little letter 
that uh, the Ephesians would enjoy reading, and maybe it'll be distributed beyond Ephesus. Uh, That's not the case at all. Scripture teaches us that everything in Scripture is a revelation. No man could come up with the concepts that are laid out in any book of Scripture. And no man, even those that are recording historical events, are going to view those historical events from a divine perspective that those books give us. So the writer of Kings is not just recording history, he's recording events, and he has a purpose, he has a design for that book to communicate things larger than simply those events. And this is Revelation. Stated simply, theologically, God has revealed to the original authors the unknowable things he wants man to know about himself. It's a good statement of revelation. Several things to note here. God is the one that reveals things. Man doesn't come up with them. Man does not come up with Scripture. And that revelation went to the original authors. It doesn't come to us in our bedrooms as we're, or studies as we're looking at God's Word. This concept of revelation deals with the original books. So God revealed to the original authors the unknowable things. Man can't come up with these ideas. And God guided it such that the outcome is what He wanted. The unknowable things He wants man to know about Himself. So there's a lot of things, particularly in Genesis, for example. uh, We don't have a lot of information about a lot of those pre-flood events. In fact, it's puzzling. Uh, One of the major events is uh, the scattering of the nations, and we have we have very little data concerning, well, where did all these nations come from? We have some hints in, in chapter 10, but little data. Where did uh, Cain and Abel get their wives? The Bible doesn't tell us all those things. A lot of things that we'd like to know, but what God has revealed, what he wants man to know about himself. And we need to be satisfied with that. That's Revelation. So this is a divine book. This is a spiritual book. If you want a biblical basis for this, let me just give you some passages real quick here. Isaiah 55, this is the need for revelation. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts. This is God speaking. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. If I can backtrack here. These thoughts are unknowable. His thoughts are unknowable. So there's no way that we can understand them. If you want a New Testament passage for this need, 1 Corinthians 2.11, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. And then in that same chapter... We have 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 10, which basically emphasizes the revelation of these ideas. Verse 6, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor the rulers of this age, who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, that's unknowable things, 
which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. And he goes on and on and on to emphasize this unknowable aspect of it. And then in verse 10, for to us, God, us, is the original authors. For to us, God revealed them. There's revelation. Through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. That's Revelation. And there's other passages similar that give us this idea of Revelation. So we believe that we have a revelation of God. This is a special book, unique book. This is the authority, that first where we started off. We also believe in inspiration. And our definition of inspiration is different from the liberal definition. The liberal teaches inspiration in that God inspires us to understand some things. Maybe in his word, maybe outside of his word. The idea that man is inspired rather than the original authors being inspired. See the difference there? Now, they would say that the original authors were inspired to write certain things, but they're still even redefining inspiration in a different way that we would understand it. Ryrie, a great theologian, privilege of sitting under, Describes inspiration, God superintending. In other words, God guiding the whole process. God controlling it. God sovereign over it. God superintending the human authors again so that they recorded his message, God's message, that revelation that we spoke of. So in other words, God superintending the revelation. God superintending the human authors so that they recorded his message to man in the words of the original authors. Now, Ryrie puts this last part in the words of the original authors in that God didn't dictate everything. Certainly there are some passages that are dictated where Moses wrote down exactly what God said. But much of the Bible, God uses the personality, the writing style, the background, the unique elements of certain authors and used their words, but he controlled the whole process, such that the end product was what he wanted, without violating the volition of the writers. And you you pick a little bit of that when you see, the, the for example, the writing of Paul is, is distinct. The, the Greek is distinct from the writer, for example, Luke. They have different styles, In fact, Luke is considered to be more classical in his writing style than Paul is. And you see very distinct differences between different authors. And that's not only true of Paul and Luke, but Paul and Peter and other writers as well. Different Old Testament prophets have different styles. So God used the original authors, used their words to accomplish his writing such that What we mean by inspiration is the end product is what God desired. That's inspiration. A couple of verses on that. The key central passage, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. And then it talks about being profitable for teaching, etc. 2 Peter 1.21 is also a central passage. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. That's Peter. In other words... The writers didn't sit down and say, I think I'm going to compose something here that 
will be interesting for my readers. He goes on. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved, there it is, that's inspiration, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. God superintending what they wrote. Now, I'm going to stress, and not all theologians do, uh, we do at Chafer, we, what happens historically, once you come up with a solid doctrine, or the church comes up with a solid doctrine, then sometimes you have people within the church that deviate from that, and they start a new movement. So you have to kind of add words, if you will, <laughs> or add refinements to your your doctrine. You would think that uh, this is clear enough, and that's pretty clear, but what do we mean when we speak of the words? So conservative theologians also add the idea of plenary inspiration. And what we mean by that, all of the words of the Bible, and this is to get around what some theologians were saying in passages where, like Paul would say, well, these are... These are the words of Jesus, and then these are my words. In other words, this is my opinion. So some liberals have taken that to think, well, this is less inspired than what Jesus says, or this is not inspired, and what Jesus said is inspired. So we talk about plenary in that all Scripture is equally inspired. In other words, what Paul said, even though he might have used the word opinion, is not less inspired than the words that Jesus actually spoke in the Gospels. Make sense? So we add the word plenary. And what we mean by that is all Scripture. As Psalm 119, 151 says, You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. And we would extend that by way of principle, all of Scripture, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. All of that is truth. And then, to get away from another idea, we add the idea of verbal inspiration. Verbal. The very words. Not just the ideas, but the very words of Scripture are inspired. Okay? So we believe in a plenary, verbally inspired scripture. And if you want a verse for that, John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh, flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you, this is Jesus speaking, he's saying the words, not just the ideas, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. That's why we do word studies. They're inspired. The words that we study are inspired. That's why we're careful in looking at wording. 1 Corinthians 2.13, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those, in other words, those words taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thought. We have thoughts, but it's the combining of spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So the words are important. See that? We believe in verbal inspiration. And if God is the one that revealed everything, and if he controlled what was written through inspiration, then the outgrowth of that, we would expect that there is inerrancy. And we believe in an inerrant Bible. And what we mean by that is it doesn't have mistakes. 
And here's a statement. Scripture is infallible, without mistakes, and without error or fault in all its parts and words. And I would emphasize the all aspect. And again, there are some theologians, even evangelical theologians, that believe in inerrancy, but what they would do is they would limit inerrancy to when the Bible speaks about theology or when it speaks of doctrine. But I believe the all means when it speaks to every area. And the reason for that is some theologians are afraid that maybe there are some historical errors or maybe there are some scientific errors. Maybe maybe Genesis 1 is not totally scientific. Well, I believe that Scripture is infallible in, and without error or fault in all of its parts, including history and science. Part of the problem is we don't have all knowledge, so we don't have everything that we need to find consistency. But if, if we don't have all of the information, the problem is usually with our understanding of history or with our understanding of science, not necessarily with what Scripture teaches. So I would include in inerrancy in all the parts of Scripture, including history, including whatever, including science. And I mentioned last time I do, a, I do an entire course called Scientific Apologetics. The whole idea of the course is to show that science basically confirms what the Bible says and does not in any way undermine it. And it makes sense. God is the creator, and science is just studying what God created, And you would expect that if you really understand what God created, then what God wrote in his book is not going to contradict what he created. And the seeming contradictions can be resolved. That's inerrancy. Uh, Jesus and Matthew, this kind of supports the idea of inerrancy. Matthew 5.18 Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. These are Hebrew letters, and what Jesus was referring to was the Hebrew alphabet, and you have letters like this. Then you come across here this little tiny letter. It's almost, well, it's the size of a comma. looks like a comma, except it's a superscript comma, I guess you could say. That's a yud. So it's considerably smaller than all of the letters. That's what Jesus is referring to. Not the smallest letter. He's referring to the Yud. Or, what does he say? Uh, New American Standard translate that. Or stroke. That's a serif. And what a serif is, is you see this little projection there on the bait, which is equivalent to our B. See that little, little projection? The only difference between a bait and a cough is that little projection. And Jesus says... Not even one of these little seraphs is going to go away until all is fulfilled. Similarly, see that little projection on the dollet, which is equivalent to our D? The only difference between a dollet and a resh, here's a resh, or equivalent of an R, is that little tiny seraph. That's what Jesus is saying. You think Jesus believed in inerrancy? It seems like it. At least it's implied in that. If you want a more specific verse, Psalm... 19.7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect. If something is perfect, does it have error or deficiency? 
uh, lost, perfect, restoring soul. The testimony, he's using synonyms, scripture here. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. If there's any insecurity, any unsurety in the word, then it's not inerrant. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. In other words, there's no error, there's no wrong. There's no wrong there. The commandment of the Lord is pure, no impurity, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, no impurity. Psalm 97 and 8. So we have inerrancy, we have canonicity, we believe in the 66 books of the Bible. We would exclude the Apocrypha, which Roman Catholicism accepts. Now, I think those are valuable books in terms of history and giving you some insight into culture and those sort of things, but I don't think they fit the criteria of inspiration and inerrancy. And we'll take a look at this in more detail. We'll talk about the transmission of the text, because this this will influence some interpretation, some hermeneutics. So I'll give you a little background on that. This course, you won't be equipped unless you have had Greek and Hebrew, and even then, unless you've taken some further courses, you won't be equipped to deal with with the issue of the transmitting of the text. But I'll give you some insight, give you some assurance on that. This gets into the whole area of textual criticism, which I'll define and give you more information. And it's basically just determining the original documents. We don't have what Paul wrote down. We don't have the manuscripts that he wrote or any of the books of the Bible and certainly no Old Testament books. Not even John, the last book. We don't have what they wrote. All we have are copies, and textual criticism is the science that reconstructs from those copies the originals. And for for now, all you need is confidence that Geiser gives us. There is more abundant and accurate manuscript evidence for the New Testament than any other book from the ancient world. And I'll bring out the significance of that when we talk some more about that. Real quickly, and then we'll take a break. This is how God transmitted his special revelation to you and I. And this is helpful in understanding the whole process that God used. First of all, we have the original authors that God selected. And through inspiration and revelation, conveyed a message. Conveyed a message that is inspired. God superintending that message. Those authors wrote what we would describe as original autographs, original documents. In case of Moses, the Pentateuch. In case of Paul, Ephesians, Galatians, Romans. Those are autographs. Those autographs were selected and canonized or put into a canon of Scripture, 66 books. Those 66 books were copied. We have none of those books. They had to be copied. We have the science of textual criticism that evaluates all of the originals that we have available, the original manuscripts of those co- uh, those copies. I shouldn't call them originals. They're uh, copies. Through the science of textual criticism, we have a Greek and Hebrew biblical text. That biblical text is translated into the different languages, in our case, English, so that we have different versions, New American Standard, NIV, 
King James and other languages. There's a Spanish Bible. There's the Latin Bible of ancient times. And there's translations in different languages, different versions. In fact, that's the whole goal of Wycliffe Bible translators is to produce versions in people's languages. And here's where you and I, when we sit down to read and to study, we need the illuminating work. So God is still involved in the process of communicating his ideas that came, first of all, to his original authors. And this goes into our minds. And once we understand it, we now want to communicate it. And uh, this is where, this will go beyond the course, but communicating it to a lost world that needs God's revelation. So that's the process. We talked about revelation. We've talked about inspiration. And our particular approach, and we talked about canonicity, I touched on textual criticism. Much of what we will deal with is in this portion here. We'll deal with the illuminating work, the exegetical part, and the principles that underlie that work. Let's take a break.